0: If you weren't here last Sunday, uh, as Dave mentioned, we had Vision Sunday, uh, and I shared a bit of, um, I suppose, the the way forward for our church and a bit of a a direction that we might be heading in together, and that's one of disciples making disciples, this idea that Jesus gave us to go into all the world and and make disciples, and and that it's not just happening from the stage, it's not just happening from those that are uh, the most qualified or those that have gone to Bible college, but really it's a mission for all of us every single one of us that are a follower of Jesus, to take on board in our own hearts and our own lives and go, all right, this is the command that I have as well, to go and make disciples. And so I encourage you to check out the podcast if you weren't here last Sunday. But this week, everyone say this week. week. Very good. Just checking you're listening. We're beginning a four-week series in the book of Acts. And now if you've read the book of Acts, you know that four weeks is not enough to cover it and we're not going to read through the whole book of Acts in four weeks, because that's literally all we would do uh, each week. We'd just sort of pick, sort of, what's 28 divided by four, Kieran? Seven, seven chapters each week, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Quick math, But we're just going to do a flyover, and we're calling this series Acts, Roots of Revival, and we're going to look at some of the big themes in the book, is books of Acts, and some of the practices and some of the traditions of the early church, what they did, what they, activities they engaged in that enabled them to see a move of God in the way they did, and some of the patterns they set up for us to, to take on board in our own life and in our own church. And so I hope and pray that it's, it's one that sort of encourages us and, and reminds us of what the, being the church is really all about. Uh, A lot of what we talk about over the next four weeks is going to be sort of foundational ideas, but I think they really set us up for um, success in God's eyes to to be the church that he wants us to be. So I'm going to read uh, a little portion of Acts chapter 1 to set it up for us, and then we'll sort of dive in and see where we go. So Acts 1, let's read from verse 4 to 14. I'm reading from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. As I imagine we all would. And suddenly two men with white clothes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the heaven? Obvious question. There's just a person. Just It's like reverse skydiving. It's crazy. Anyway, this same Jesus who has been taken taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you've seen him gone, going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they had been staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, some of the Zealot, and Judas the, same, Judas, the son of James. And they were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So God, we ask that you would help us to understand and hear your voice this morning, um, help us to, to see the scriptures the way you want us to, and help us to apply them in our own in our own life and in this church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Friday night, um, two nights ago, uh, I was at home and uh, Alana was out with a friend for dinner and so I had the, the task of... Getting my own dinner, um, Alana bought it for me, but I got to cook it and, and prepare it, uh, and which is great because um, I've just built sort of a new barbecue area, an outdoor area, and I love cooking on the barbecue. And so I was cooking a barbecue and going to cook a steak and a really nice piece of steak, and it's like that's that's great. And um, and I did wonder. I had I had a moment uh, when I was I put the boys to bed and it's just me, some steak out on the deck, beautiful, beautiful night on Friday night, fantastic, and I had a moment where I thought to myself, I wonder if I should cook anything else with this steak, but that was it, that was the only moment, so I just cooked the steak, (laughs) had it on the cutting board, chopped it up, and ate it, bit of salt, that's all I had, you know, that was steak with a side of salt, Um, it was all I had, you know, because I think, you know, if you're going to cook a nice bit of steak, all the other things on the plate are just, I mean, yeah, they, they add a bit of colour, add a bit of life to the plate. We really don't mind if they're there or not. We don't care what they are as long as the steak's there. If the steak wasn't there and just had the stuff around it, some of you would be like, oh, that'd be great, just a plate of vegetables. I mean, we'll pray for you later. But <laughs> if the steak wasn't there, it just it wouldn't be. it just wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be right. You know, the main ingredient in a meal is the most important one. If you don't have the main ingredient, then the whole meal is ruined and it's no point in having it and so I just figured I'll just have the main ingredient and nothing else Um, one there's less washing up to do it's much easier to cook and it was great and if I got hungry afterwards I'll just have some wheat bix (laughs) because I share that because I, I wonder what the main ingredient in a move of God is what's the main ingredient in a move of God and hopefully you know straight away what is it it's God God is the main ingredient in the move of God. And this might seem like, well, obvious, Brad, but this morning I want us to just come back to this central idea that nothing of God happens without God. Nothing of God happens without God. And what we desire and what we want to see in this church and, and, and the church worldwide is a move of God, is we want to see people come to God, and that is something of God. That's not something that we can manufacture But that's something only God can manufacture. That's something only God can do. Only God can save a life. With with man, this is impossible, Jesus says. In talking about salvation, in talking about people coming to Jesus. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Without God, seeing disciples make disciples is impossible. It cannot be done. But with God, it's possible. God is the main ingredient in a move of God. Nothing of God happens without God. And so we're going to see that through the book of Acts this morning as this call to prayer and seeking God for things to happen. Is that the early church and the disciples always went to prayer. They always turned to God when they needed him to move. They didn't think to themselves, let's just work this out. And then if it doesn't work, then we'll pray. It's like they always just turned to God when they needed God to move. So, when we look at the book of Acts, uh, Acts is written by um, Luke, the same person who wrote the the Gospel of Luke. And we see that um, in a number of different ways, and we won't get into that. If you want to study that, go for it. Just take my word for it. I believe Luke wrote the book of Acts. And right at the beginning of Acts and verse 1, he says this He says, In my former, I wrote the first narrative, Theopolis about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so Acts is really a continuation of Luke's gospel. It really flows on well from Luke's gospel. The themes are similar. And sometimes we might say that Acts, we might call the Acts of the Apostles, but really it would be better um, named the Acts of Jesus. I mean, it's really God at work. The apostles were maybe the conduit of God's power and God's work, but the apostles did nothing of their own power. They only did what Jesus' power enabled them to do. So the acts of Jesus uh, we see displayed. And Jesus is the only constant through the book of Acts. You know, the, the apostles are, it's not centered around one apostle. It's centered around a whole lot of different ones. And we see the power and the work of Jesus throughout the book of Acts. The other main thing that we see in the book of Acts, and this is really the, the big idea in the book of Acts, is that we see this gospel spread. We see that the, the message of Jesus, the, the death and the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of God, is spreading from Jerusalem out like wildfire. It's just going crazy. There's churches planting everywhere, there's movements of God happening everywhere. And it was really at the instruction and the command and the promise of Jesus in Acts 1, verse 8, which we just read. But let's read it again. He says, We all receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts is really um, even structured around this promise. That the first few chapters, I think up to chapter 7 is about the, the gospel spread in Jerusalem. And then it moves beyond that in verse, in chapters 8 to 12 to Judea and Samaria, and then beyond chapter 13 to Asia Minor, Europe, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see in the book of Acts, this promise takes shape that the gospel spread was happening. And in fact, the most of the New Testament... When you think about this idea what was happening in this time, most of the New Testament was written because of this gospel spread happening so rapidly. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever sort of read the the New Testament. This is not, we're just going down a little rabbit hole here. I don't know if you've really read uh, a lot of the New Testament and, and wondered, you know, Paul doesn't really instruct evangelism much. He doesn't, like, there's no real clear command in Paul's letters to go and tell people about Jesus. You know, you look into it yourself. There's no it's sort of like an assumption that it's happening because of Paul's letters and Timothy and and the other other epistles and the other letters that are written are really written because of the wildfire spread of the gospel. It's really mopping up a mess that Acts creates, that the gospel is going so fast to all these different towns and they're, they're beginning churches all over the place and then suddenly they're going, whoa, 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 hang on, you can't you can't commit adultery, you, you can't have lots of gods, like they're just putting out all these false doctrines everywhere about, and trying to get people back to, this is what the gospel's about. And it's fascinating when you read the, the New Testament in light of what was happening in the time, that it gives a different light on, on those epistles and on those letters, that they're written because of rapid gospel spread, because the church was just going crazy, Into not, not literally they're just figure of speech you know getting bigger seeing people come to faith so the gospel spreads happening through acts and we see that we see some of the church churches that we have letters um, to um, planted in the in the story and throughout acts the other thing that we see and the a main theme in acts is this idea of the holy spirit and we read this in Acts 2, 1 to 3, the day of Pentecost says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly sounds like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. And they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. And now when we read this, we think, well, that's just weird. That is a strange thing to happen. But for the early Jewish community, this is significant because this rushing wind and this fire is very symbolic and is very a a, a powerful image of the presence of God. Because you read through Exodus, you read through Deuteronomy, you read through 2 Chronicles, you, you see examples of the fire of God like a pillar of fire and it represents the glory or the presence of God. And it was only a select few that could really be a part of it but it, it, it represented the, the, the presence of God. The, the, the thunder and the lightning and the, the rushing wind, the storms that were associated with the, the, the pillar of fire and the cloud uh, were very symbolic to the Jewish community and to the people that were witnessing this day of Pentecost. That Suddenly the presence of God, the glory of God was on each person. It wasn't just over there. It wasn't just at Mount Sinai or in the temple, but it was on each one. And this was significant because suddenly the the presence of God was no longer accessible by just a select few, priests or Levites, but suddenly the presence of God dwelt with each person and the temple of God was no longer the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple of God was the, the people of God. And this threatened Herod because he was trying to contain, well, the presence of God is in the temple, but the Holy Spirit was suddenly enabling the presence of God to be in each and every person. And we see this change from where the presence of God is finding itself. It's no longer finding itself in just a Jerusalem temple, but now it is finding itself in each believer, each person, each follower of Jesus. And in the temple, or in the presence of God, in the meeting place of God, we see that the things that were supposed to be happening in the temple, that were originally written about in Deuteronomy and in some of the laws, were now happening through the acts of the apostles, through the meeting in houses and giving generously to one another and through healing and through giving to the needy. These things that were supposed to, and the original intent of the temple, were now happening throughout people's homes and through Christian gatherings. And so again, we see the the move of God happening and bringing back people to this idea that the temple of God is is about God's purpose. It's not about some uh, religious institution, but it's really about the purposes of God. God's new temple, God's, God's people, are fulfilling the purpose that it was originally designed for. And Herod is threatened by this idea, and so he constantly comes after the disciples, the apostles, trying to squash what they're doing um, because he doesn't like it. And so Acts is all about this early revival because of the presence of God, God's kingdom spreading far and wide, and people are coming to faith everywhere. The kingdom of God is spreading and multiplying and disciples are making disciples, and with this comes a whole lot of mess. People are getting confused, as I said, what right theology is, right, right, what right doctrine is, and... Um, and part of the resistance, I think, for us today in, in this idea of disciples making disciples is exactly the same as what they were facing back then. Is this fear that if each and every one of us goes out and starts telling people and, and discipling people, then what if we get it wrong? What if we don't know the Bible well enough? What if we tell someone a, a false doctrine? What if, like... Probably you wouldn't do that, but what if the person next to you who's not as good as you, what if they tell someone a false doctrine? The person you're like, oh, I wouldn't want them to go and make a disciple because they're not very good disciples themselves. That's our fear. Like that's Honestly, that's some of the feedback that I've had in response to this idea of disciples making disciples is that oh, some people just aren't ready for it yet because they don't understand it properly. They don't understand it properly. But a move of God... We have to trust that God is at work, that God is going to sort this out. He did in the early church, and thank God he did, that he enabled the apostles to just rapidly mobilize thousands of people to multiply and just for the gospel to spread. He can hold us all together. He can sort that out. We don't need to sort of control it all for him. He can do it. If we will trust him and run with the plan that he has. He's looking for people whose hearts are for him, And who will follow his call. Not who have every single little thing sorted out. Theology, Theologically wise. Theology wise. Whatever I'm trying to say. You understand. I mean there's so much more that we could say in in terms of an overview of Book of Acts. But I want us to get to the main sort of theme and point for this morning. And that's this idea that nothing of God happens without God. And this idea that we need to pray and wait on God for him to move. So in Matthew 28, we see the Great Commission, Jesus, um, just before this event, gets his disciples together and he says this in verses 18 to 20. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus' vision and mission for his disciples is that disciples would be making disciples. That you're my disciples now, It's over to you. Go and make disciples. But the power and authority of Jesus is the foundation for this disciple-making business. Notice Jesus at the beginning of that Great Commission says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. We're going with his power. We're going in his authority. We're going because he's commanded it. And that's significant. And we talked about that a little bit last week. And throughout the Bible, it's clear that that nothing of God happens without God, that every single move of God happens without God. You know, just even this week I've been reading um, through the Bible and I'm up to um, Exodus and I've been reading through the plagues of Egypt and it's amazing when you read through that, the first few plagues, the the magicians and the sorcerers sort of like match match God with the plagues. It's just comical that something terrible is happening to their country and they're like, we can do that too, watch. It's like, well, don't do it. It's like, it's bad. (laughs) You're not helping. Anyway, but... Like, after, I think, the second or the third day, they just can't do it anymore. It's like, they do it for the first few days, they match God, you know, um, whatever the first, I can't remember, nats for nats and blood for blood and, and a few different random things. And, but then after the third or fourth day, it's like, oh, we can't do that one. Nah, we can't do that one. Can't do that one. Can't make the, the dust turn into to locusts. Like, ugh, that's beyond us. You know, and it got me thinking about this idea that I think sometimes... People can sort of replicate a move of God with their own sort of power, but it can only go so far. It can only look so good, and then suddenly it just sort of runs out. It's like, poof, it's gone. It's like, no, nah. It can't follow through in the way God can. And even in Matthew 16, I was reading, um, you know, Jesus confronting Peter and saying, who do people say that I am? And some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, but no, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. Flesh and blood doesn't reveal to us who Jesus is. You cannot know Jesus except by the power of God. You can't even come to faith without a move of God. People that are far from Jesus can't come to Jesus without God intervening and showing them who Jesus is. And again, this lifts a huge weight off our shoulders that we we can't convince people into the kingdom of God. We can't argue people into the kingdom of God. It doesn't come by flesh and blood. It comes by our Father in heaven, revealing himself to people. And so that's why we need to pray. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to turn to God, is that we need the authority, we need the power of God, in our life without God we can't see his kingdom come we can't see any sort of revival like we've seen throughout history sometimes I think I'm the main ingredient in a move of God sometimes I think it's about how much faith I have how much worship I have how how I hold my hands how I how much I read my bible how much I give how much I serve what I say you know, I think it's somehow dependent on me. And this morning, if, that's, if you're in that place where you sometimes think it's about you, it's all about redirecting your focus and saying, no, a move of God happens because of God, not because of you. It happens when we turn to God, not to turning to ourselves. So Jesus gives the command, go and make disciples because of my authority, in my power. In Acts, we see this, Sort of continue. Jesus continues, um, and let's have a look at these verses that we read at the very beginning in Acts one four to fourteen, the first four verses there in four to eight. Let's reread it. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, "You have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days." They knew this was coming. They'd heard about the Holy Spirit a lot. So, when they'd come together, they asked, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you'll be my witnesses. And so, Jesus gives them this promise. And it's a promise of purpose and power. This is the promise you'll have purpose, you'll be my witnesses throughout the world. You'll see people come to know me, you'll make disciples. You will teach. You will baptize. You'll see people come into the kingdom. You'll be a part of that. That's the purpose. But he also promises power, that you'll have the Holy Spirit. The purpose is clear. It's huge. It's daunting. It seems impossible. And hopefully, when we think about the the purpose that God has for us of disciples making disciples, it seems impossible. It seems like, well, that's far-fetched, Brad. I hope it drives you to that point. I hope it drives you to that point where okay, Brad, we need God. We just can't do it. We need God. Hopefully that's where it drives us all to, is the purpose is so big that it drives us to relying on God's power. But the purpose is is accompanied by the promise of power. You'll get the Holy Spirit. You'll receive what you need for the mission. God's purpose for our life is always accompanied by his power to fulfill it. God's purpose for your life is always accompanied by his power to fulfill it. He doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us high and dry. He doesn't say, ha ha, tricked you. Got your hopes up. But he says, this is the purpose. It's huge. It's daunting. It's impossible. But here's my power to fulfill it. Here's what you need. And that's what he's saying to the disciples here. This is the purpose. You're going to take this message, this little group of 12 of you, well, 11 of you at this point, and you're going to be my witnesses. Listen to his words. Jerusalem. All right. Well, that's a lot of people. Judea and Samira. wow, Jesus, I mean, come on. It's 11 of us. To the ends of the earth. It's like, oh, okay. That's a joke. I mean, there's like, what, 150 of us here this morning. It's like, I haven't done the maths, but I imagine it's somewhat equivalent to population. Maybe not quite. Anyway, even if we had to be, we were the only Christians in all of Australia, and Jesus is saying, you know what? You're going to evangelize all of Australia. Be like, uh. Eh. All right, so I'm pretty sure there's more than 150 towns in Australia. So some of us have got a few towns each. See you guys. Good luck. It's daunting, isn't it? It's like, but the promise is there and it's accompanied by power, the Holy Spirit. And so what do the disciples do? They hear Jesus' words and then it says in verses 12 to 14, it says they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, all the disciples there, and they were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they hear this promise, they hear this purpose, and then they go, great, let's pray. Great, let's turn to God, because we need this power. We need this move of God, because this purpose, this mission that he has is far too big for us we need a move of God and everyone was there it wasn't just the 11 it wasn't just the pastors it was the women the children the brothers everyone was in this room and they were all united in prayer they were all turning to God together for him to move for him to bring the power that he promised there was prayer and there was patience there wasn't a special song There wasn't a special time or position or words. I didn't have to hold the hands in a certain way. But there was prayer and patience. They were waiting on God for him to move. And this is how the church began. This is how the church, our church, began. Was with people waiting on God in prayer. It didn't start with a fancy strategy. It didn't start with some sort of, you know, outlandish plans or schemes. It's just started with a group of people just going, well, we need God. We need God to move. It didn't begin with Bible college. It didn't begin with a committee. It began with prayer and seeking God. And if we really want to see this sort of change, this sort of revival in our city and our nation, we will be driven to pray and wait on God. We'll be driven to turn to God, hold God to his word and pray for his power to come upon us to fulfill his purpose Because prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. Prayer is what we need. Turn to God is what we need. Nothing of God happens without God. God's purpose comes when we agree with him and go to him in prayer. And then through the book of Acts, we see the apostles move towards prayer, move towards this waiting on God time and time again. I mean, there's so many times when they're talking about, it talks about them praying to God. Even in Luke's gospel, Luke just has this sort of overemphasis on prayer. And turning to God, and the apostles prayed about everything. They were praying about leadership decisions, about healing the sick, about um, prison doors opening, about safety, about travels. About um, they were praying for the gospel to spread, for mis- for missions, for for healings in times of crisis, when repenting, when saying goodbye to someone. The whole church was praying together. Individuals are praying by themselves. I mean, just you name it. They were doing it in prayer. There was no sort of recipe for prayer. It wasn't like you have to do this much prayer for this many minutes with this many people. It was just like, this was happening, so they prayed. This was happening, so they prayed. This was happening, so they prayed. Prayer was the default, not the last resort. Prayer was the default, not the last resort. They didn't just pray when they couldn't figure out the answer, but they just turned to God in prayer as a default. This is what we do. God said he would do it, so let's let's ask him to do it. Let's pray. Nothing of God happens without God. And I wonder if God were listening in on our prayers this week. It's a scary thing to think about that God actually listens to our prayers, but if God was listening in, and he was, by the way, listening in to your prayers this week, how many of your prayers were centered around this idea of mission, of seeing people come to know Jesus? Of God changing hearts? of God sending workers out into the harvest field. So many of the prayers and the, 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 the intent of the early disciples, the apostles, was around mission. It was all around spreading the gospel. There was other things they had to work out on the way and they prayed for those things, but they were just like a bee in a bonnet. They were just centered around this gospel spread idea, this mission that God had sent them on, to see people come to know him, to spread the good news. In our Western culture, it's difficult for us to get in the, in the shoes or in the headspace of the early apostles because we don't face the same sort of persecution or the same sort of opposition that they faced. And so in our Western culture, in a culture where if we want something, generally we can work hard enough and we can get it. Or we can pay someone enough money and we can get it. It, it seeps into our church thinking, into our Christian thinking that, well, if we want to see disciples make disciples, we can we could probably put a pretty smick program together and we could do it. Like if we really tried hard enough, we could put up enough lights, enough banners, enough free food. Like, We could make it really cool and people might come and we might see something good happen. And so we're not driven to prayer in the same way that the early apostles were because they didn't have any other hope. They'd, that was it for them. And so I think we have, we have a big hurdle to jump in in our getting over ourselves and our ability to do things and saying, well, we can't do this. There's a lot of things we can do. There's a lot of things we have figured out, but we can't do this. We can get what we want if we work hard enough. We rely on science, technology, money, and other gifts from God to get what we need rather than going to the source of those things himself. In the early church... And developing countries even today are forced more than we are to turn to God for every need. And so in doing so, they experience God more. This is one of the byproducts of praying more, is that you experience God more. You ever thought about this idea that why would God want us to pray? Why wouldn't he just do the things he wants to do, the purpose that he has? Why wouldn't he just do them without us being involved? Because God's original desire and intent was relationship and intimacy. And prayer is a a road to that. Prayer is a pathway to intimacy with God. If God was just to do his purpose without us going to him, then the relationship wouldn't develop. The original intent of why he created us wouldn't be there. And so prayer causes us to turn to God and have intimacy with him, to talk to him and have him talk to us. And so we are to pray about everything, just alone for that reason, that we might experience him more. Paul writes in Philippians 3 verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. God's design, original plans, that we might know him and walk with him. And this happens when we pray. And so on that, I think there's only one thing that we could do. Have some lunch? No. Pray. I think we should pray. So I want to invite you to stand. Um, The team's going to come back up. We're going to sing one last song. We're going to pray for our town. We're going to pray for each other, for boldness, for courage. But I also encourage you that you can pray in this moment. Maybe the person next to you might turn to them and say, can we pray together? Can I pray for you? Might be a scary thing to think about. But the early apostles and everyone were praying together. It wasn't just the pastor. It wasn't just the leader. Everyone was involved in this prayer. Everyone was praying for each other. Everyone was praying for the power of God. And so I want to encourage us and challenge us as a church to be more intent on praying with each other, for each other, and for the purpose of God to come to pass. So God, right now, in this moment, we turn to you And we recognize that nothing that you've called us to can happen without you working through us and in us. And God, we know that your desire and your heart for people to come into a relationship with you is greater than ours could ever be. And so God, first and foremost, we ask that you would birth that desire in us to see the lost come to know you. God, give us a desperation. Help us to see the crowds like Jesus did and, and have compassion Sheep without a shepherd. God, I also pray that you would equip us for the journey. God, that your Holy Spirit would fill us and empower us to carry out the purpose that you have for us. God, we hold you to your word. You promise your Holy Spirit to fill us to enable us to be your witnesses, to enable us to make disciples. And so, God, we ask for that power, for that courage, for that boldness to do exactly that. And God, we pray that you would birth in us a desire to turn to you more often. God, that prayer would be our default in every situation, not our last resort. God, that we would develop an intimacy with you as we pray about everything every decision, every moment, every experience. God, give us that intimacy with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's worship together and sing together, but I encourage you as well to pray during this last song. Maybe find someone and pray with them, or at least pray by yourself. Pray that God would encourage you and give you a boldness and a courage to, to be a disciple, like God.